Thanks for listening. Learn more about our church and support by giving to the Mission of the Oaks at www.theoakscommunitychurch.org. Peace be with you. We're going to finish our book of Joshua this morning. We've been traveling through the book of Joshua. I know we skipped a lot, but um, uh, there's a lot in there that you, you're, you're welcome to read. I would encourage you to read. Um, it's a lot of the land allotments and things like that. But we're actually going to jump all the way to Joshua 24. So if you've got your Bible, turn to it. Joshua 24, or turn your Bible on. That's your preferred method. We're going to pick up in verse 14, and we're going to read down to verse 29. So Joshua 24, starting in verse 14. And I'll just give you a little bit of like context if you're, if you're just popping in and you haven't been here in a while or you're new or whatever it is. Everything has been accomplished at this point in this part of the storyline of the Bible with God's people. They've, they've, they've been promised a land to rest in the promised land, as the Bible calls it. And, um, but in that land, when they crossed over the river and into this land, it was full of giants and enemies, and they had to, they, they had to face um, these giants, and they had to face these battles, and they did so um, all through God and His grace. And it's been quite the military campaign led by uh, the one and only Joshua, who was a phenomenal military leader. Um, and so they had no place to call home. Now they do have a home. Um, they were wanderers and nomads, but that is done. And the military campaign that Joshua has been so gifted at leading them through um, is, is now come to a close. They have this land. They have this place. They have peace. The question, though, that remains at this point at the end of the story, what are they going to do with the peace? <laughs> what are they going to do now in the place that they've been given that's the question. And I find it helpful as you read this chapter, this section that we're going to read. I, I like to read it like this. It reads almost like a one-part commencement speech and one-part altar call. Uh, that's kind of how it feels. And if you, if you grew up in the church at all and you grew up in a kind of a culture of a church that had altar calls, you, you kind of know what that means, a kind of making a decision and, and that sort of thing. And so... Um, and that's interesting because these are not children, per se. These are adults um, in the faith, and they're not new graduates, really. They've been through a lot. They've seen a lot. I mean, they, they, they've seen incredible things, incredible things that God has done for them. And, um, and so it's interesting that Joshua feels it's necessary to do that. He just doesn't assume fidelity, you know, which is an interesting approach and something for you to think about as you read it. He doesn't mince his words in this section. And so, if anything, I would say Joshua assumes a level of immaturity within the people. And so you get the sense that Joshua's looking at a crowd of grown adults, and ironically, he's saying to them, it's time for you to grow up. Anybody ever said that to you? <laughs> you know, I say it to my kids all the time. Um, and, you know, it's just one of these things, it's time for you to grow up. It's time. And so... With that in mind, um, let's read it, and so I want you to think of it in those terms, that they're being encouraged, commanded, invited, however you want to see it, to grow up in the faith. Yes, you've said you have faith. Yes, you've seen the Lord do things, but it's time to grow up in the faith. Now, let's pick up in verse 14, and this is Joshua's kind of retirement speech, commencement speech, altar call, all wrapped up in one. Here's what he says. Now, therefore, 
fear the Lord and serve Him in sincerity and in faithfulness. Put away the gods that your fathers served beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. And if it's evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, well, choose this day whom you will serve whether the gods your father served in the region beyond the river or the, the gods of the Amorites in whose land you, you, you now dwell in, right? But as for me, some of you are just like, oh, I love this verse. <laughs> but as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And then the people answered, far be it from us that we should forsake the Lord to serve other gods. For it is the Lord, our God, who brought us and our fathers up from the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, and who did those great signs in our sight and preserved us in all the way that we went and among all the peoples through whom we passed. And the Lord drove out before us all the peoples, the Amorites who lived in the land. Therefore, we also will serve the Lord, for he is our God. But Joshua said to the people, <laughs> And you're not able to serve the Lord, for he's a holy God. He's a jealous God. He will not forgive your transgressions or your sins if you forsake the Lord and you serve foreign gods. Then he will turn and do you harm and consume you after having done you good. And the people said to Joshua, no, but we will serve the Lord. And then Joshua said to the people, you are witnesses against yourselves that you have chosen the Lord to serve him. And they said, we are witnesses. And he said, then put away the foreign gods that are among you and incline your heart to the Lord, the God of Israel. And the people said to Joshua, the Lord, our God, we will serve and his voice we will obey. So Joshua made a covenant with the people that day and put in place statues and rules for them at Shechem. And Joshua wrote these words in the book of the law of God, and he took a large stone and set it up under the terebinth that was uh, by the sanctuary of the Lord. And Joshua said to all the people, Behold, this stone shall be a witness against us, for it has heard all the words of the Lord that he spoke to us. Therefore, it shall be a witness against you, lest you deal falsely with your God. So Joshua sent the people away, every man to his inheritance. After these things, Joshua the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died being 110 years old. This is the word of the Lord. Growing up in the faith. So if you're like not a believer yet and, and you're in here this morning, I, I love that you're here. And so this gives you an opportunity to, have, to listen in on an inside conversation of what it looks like, of what people that already are in the faith need to think about. And I want to begin really here by just quoting Dr. James Hollis uh, in his book called Living an Examined Life. He says this, um, what does it mean to grow up? Did we not become grown-ups when puberty arrived? When we stepped into large bodies and large agendas? Did we not grow up when we left our familial homes and stepped out into the world and said, hire me, I can do that job. Marry me. I will hold my end of the deal. Trust me. I can carry that responsibility. Have we not been grown-ups through responsibly exercising parental, fiduciary, relational, and societal roles for years? 
And yet, when I have asked people in workshops, reasonable, accomplished, responsible people, where do you need to grow up? Why has no one yet asked me to explain that question? Why has no one challenged the legitimacy of the assignment? And why has everyone begun writing in a matter of minutes, if not seconds? So how is it that we play all these mature roles, yet know in our heart of hearts that we still have to grow up? Amen? Some of you might be sitting there thinking, I have totally grown up. Well, this message is not for you. But for the rest of us that still walk away from church Sundays, some Sundays, or walk away from work, you know, get in your car from work or whatever it is, or close your laptop at home or whatever kind of job you have, and then you think, I have no idea what I'm doing. This is a conversation for you. One thing I've learned a while back from um, listening to outside teachers talk about how to preach to congregations is and that I've kind of adopted is this idea that um, whenever you stand in front of a congregation, do always assume a high degree of intelligence. Don't talk down to people. People in the room are probably as smart, if not smarter, than you. Okay, check. The other thing is, is though, don't assume a high degree of spiritual maturity. Uh, and I, I don't say that to... Um, offend you. I hope it doesn't offend you. I just learned um, that this is true, that mature believers have such a humility about them that they oftentimes still feel like beginners in the faith. And so um, for them, they never think too highly of themselves and what they might need to hear. That's kind of a signal and a sign of a mature believer. You know, the reality is, is that spiritual Christian know-it-allism is an immediate red flag for incredible immaturity ironic, right? The truth is maturing in your faith, growing up in the faith, is slow, it's hard fought, it, <laughs> it's painful at times. I would even say it's somewhat of a mysterious dance, like how exactly can I do this and how much control over this do I have? But there is a pattern there is a pattern, I think, that the Bible lays out of what it means and what it looks like to, to grow up and mature in your faith. And I think this pattern can give you hope and direction, and I think Joshua 24 highlights it. And what I would like to say is that they're not steps for you. So for you type A step people, sorry, don't think of these that way. It's more like reminders or perspectives to, to carry inside of you. And the first one is this, uh, maturity in the faith, growing up in the faith. It begins and it is sustained by taking responsibility for your life. Take responsibility for your life. I don't think you can take responsibility. I don't think that you can save yourself. I think that's really clear in the Bible. That being said, I do think that you can take responsibility for whether or not you feel like you need and that you want to be saved. Take responsibility for your life. Susan Scott says, um, she's an author, I, I really like Susan Scott, and she says, all conversations are with yourself, and sometimes they're with other people. What she means is, is that if you're ever going to have a meaningful relationship with anyone, 
you need to recognize first and foremost that there is always a conversation playing outside of your head that's skewing and coloring and shading all of your other conversations that you're having. And until you're being honest about the conversation inside your head, you're not actually showing up fully present and honest in the situation that you're in with other people. I think that's totally true in our faith and with God. Who actually are you? What are you doing with your life? Are you living the life you want to live? You know, not the life that your parents told you to live. Not the life that your spouse or your friends are living. Like, do you live the life that you want to live? And are you taking responsibility for it? The sacrifices that it requires, the commitments. Is there alignment with what you say you want to do and then what actually are the facts on the ground? Are these sorts of questions, these are the kind of questions that I think are deeply uh, difficult, painful even, disturbing. Um, But this is the reality I think that Susan Scott is getting at is taking responsibility for your life means having a hard conversation with what's happening in your own life. This is exactly what Joshua's doing with these people. When church people think of the book of Joshua, and I, I alluded and joked about this earlier, when, when church people typically, this is what I have found, when they, th- they think about the book of Joshua, they're like, if I say, hey, have you ever read the book of Joshua? And people are like, yeah, yeah, it's been a while, but yeah, I've read that. And then I think, what's one thing you remember from the book of Joshua? What will they say? Here's what they'll say. Verse 15, the end. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. It's probably on some people's walls in their house. And it is, it's a, it's a wonderful line. And it is, in some respects, it's, it's Joshua doing this thing. He is taking responsibility for his life. He knows where he ends and they begin. He's differentiating himself, you could say. It's a great example of that. He, he, they might be, he knows that... They are rooted in community, and that's a wonderful thing. And he knows that they should be looking out for each other, and that's a wonderful and true thing. But ultimately, ultimately, your maturity, your maturity particularly in your faith, requires taking responsibility for who you are, for who you are. Where are you? What exactly do you want with this one wild life, this side of heaven that you have? But here's the thing. I, as much as that is a wonderful verse, and I do love it, I find the line that comes before it that no one remembers more telling. And what I mean is, is he, when he says this, and if it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day. Choose this day whom you will serve whether the gods your father served in the region beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in the land you now dwell. The, one of the great superpowers, I think, of you, you and me, despite all our different giftings, what's our great superpower? What is, you know, despite all of our limitations as human beings, what's the superpower you have? Here's what the superpower is. You have freedom to choose. You do not have to live the life that your parents lived. You do not have to live the life that the culture lives. These things influence us. These things 
pressure us, these things mount upon us, but you have the freedom to choose. You have the freedom to stop and think and say, wait, what am I doing and why am I doing it? And is actually this what I want with my life? You have the freedom to choose. And continuing to, continuing to blame the circumstances around you, to blame my parents, to blame my friends, to blame the culture, is actually not taking responsibility for your life. Don't get me wrong. People do things that hurt us. Uh, people do things that influence us. But maturity requires boldly owning the fact that we have choices in our life. Now, um, notice, uh, and this is both shocking and not shocking, really, when you think about it. Joshua calls out the elephant in the room, doesn't he? Right from the start, he recognizes where these people have come from and what they've been through. And he recognizes that they've had parents that were polytheistic, meaning they worshipped many gods. You know, If you go back far enough, their ultimate ancestor, Abraham, came from a polytheistic region. You know, They, they were in Egypt, which was a polytheistic place. And, so they're, and they're now living in a land and have contact with a culture around them that's polytheistic, that has many gods. But what Joshua does here is really powerful. What he does is he respects and he calls out their dignity of agency. Yes, that's what you've come from. Yes, I know that it, this is maybe how you were raised. Yes, I know that this is what you've been exposed to. Yes, I know that this is what you encounter on a daily basis when you go out into the street or into the market or whatever it is. But here's the thing. You have agency. What are you going to do with it? It's as if he says, look, this is how your ancestors worshiped. This is who your parents were. This is who the culture is around you. But who are you? Who do you want to be? No one can decide that for you but you. And maturity begins and grows as often as we address the, the really deep question that Dr. Hollis talked about. Where do I need to grow up? It doesn't matter. It's not, an, it's not a question of age. It's a question of alignment. Like, do, is what I want and what I'm doing, if I want the Lord and do I want to be a Christian and do I want to do this and do I really want to grow in my faith, okay, is my life reflect these things? Am I taking responsibility for that? And for our purposes here, I think we need to ask this, essentially. Where am I deeply religious towards other things? Where am I religious towards other things, you know? Things that truly do compete in my faith, for my faith in, in the Lord. This is the question I came across, and I was working this out with Kyle, our executive director, this week. Because there's this great story um, that Susan Scott actually tells about. Her. She has a close friend who's an executive, an intimidating figure of a large, large company who had an employee that the executive courageously promoted, but promoted this employee after this employee walked into his office with a bucket full of sand and dumped it onto the rug in the middle of his office, to which the executive said, what the expletive are you doing? And the employee looked at the executive and said, I just thought it would be easier for you to continue to bury your head in the sand. 
because you continue to ignore the real issue that's going on here. That employee got promoted because the employee was willing to risk their job, risk their whole career on the truth and the sense of urgency that this company is going to tank if you don't get honest about what's actually going on. What's going on in your life? I mean, what are you pretending, is the question that Kyle and I were working through. What are you pretending to not know? You know. Like, what are you, what are, <laughs> what's the religion, what's the re- competing religions in your life, the competing idolatries? Is it money? Is it looks? Is it reputation? Because Joshua doesn't ask them, does he? If they have competing religions, he assumes it. (laughs) Doesn't he? He's like, I know that this is going on. Let's not pretend like it's not. And so let's just name them, and then then let's start to address them. That's something that for immature people, they'll want to split off and say, no, 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 let's pretend like it's not there. Right? It's the, it's, the, it's the countless probably dinner kind of conversations or party or social gathering conversations that you've had where it's like no one is really addressing the real issue here. And stuff happens, begins to happen when somebody says, can we just talk about the real issue? And I think that that first and foremost is what I'm talking about starts with yourself. Growing up in a maturity doesn't just assume that these competing gods are a part of my life. It's, it's a given. I have them, you have them, we have them. We have competing gods. Family dynamics, reputation dynamics, money dynamics, whatever it is. There's always something that we're moonlighting with to, get, to, to feel more secure, to feel more comfortable, to, to feel more worth. But it means to grow up in these maturity isn't just to identify these things, but then to begin to own the fact that they're not taking me to the place I want to go. And so maturing in the faith means paying attention. I would say it this way. It means paying attention and taking more ownership of what doesn't go on your resume. You know what I mean? Right? A quick way to have a good connection with somebody is to start discussing the stuff that doesn't go on your resume. Right? Well, I'm just a... My weakness is I work too hard. (laughs) Wah, wah. You know what I mean? No one puts on their resume, hey, you know what, honestly, once noon hits, I'm worthless. And it just goes downhill. No one puts that on their resume. You know what I mean, though? The stuff that we tend to hide and dislike about ourselves, because you have those things, right? There are things that you would be terribly embarrassed by if they were broadcasted to the community around you. I have them. Of course I have them, and you have them too. And so, and I think in the Christian sense, that means, and oftentimes I'm talking about the things that are idolatrous. I'll give you an example of what it looks like to to take ownership and to to speak these things. This is actually an obituary. Uh, by an author and journalist, Ken Fusen, he died in 2020. And 
because he knew of his upcoming close impending death, he just took it upon himself as a writer to write his own obituary. And I'll just give you some of the highlights of it. And so as you, read, as you hear this, this is him pinning this about himself. Ken Fusen, born June 23, 1956, died January 3, 2020 in a Nebraska medical center in Omaha of liver cirrhosis and is stunned to learn that the world is somehow able to go on without him. <laughs> he attended the university's famous school of journalism, which is a clever way of saying almost graduated but didn't. In 1996, Ken took the principled stand of leaving the register because the Sun in Baltimore offered him more money. Three years later, after having blown most of that money at the Pimlico racetrack, he returned to the register where he remained until 2008. For most of his life, Ken suffered from a compulsive gambling addiction that nearly destroyed him. But his church friends and the loving people at Gamblers Anonymous never gave up on him. Ken last placed a bet on September 5th, 2009. He died clean. He hopes that anyone who needs help will seek it, which is hard, and accept it, which is even harder. Miracles abound. We chuckle, rightfully so, he wanted you to chuckle, at his self-deprecating style of writing his own obituary. But my guess is you found it refreshing. My guess is, is there something about your heart that feels deep connection to that and is like, ooh, I like that. Why? Why? Why do you connect? Why do you resonate? Maybe it resonates lock and key with your heart because we know it's actually who we are as Christians. That these are the sort of things that are actually mark our lives. In other words, <laughs> actually as Christians, we're committed to Jesus, but so frequently my life reflects something else. That's reality. And so this is why it's not just taking responsibility for our life, but the second thing here is that to really mature, to grow up in faith, it means assume inconsistency and hypocrisy. Assume it. After the people renew their commitment to serve the Lord, Joshua does something that the self-confident types would find absolutely offensive. He declares... Uh, in verse 22, he said, Joshua says to the people, you are witnesses against yourselves that you have chosen the Lord to serve him. And they said, we're witnesses. And he rolls a stone up, right, as a witness against it as well. The, the stone is heard. Every time you look at the stone, it'll be a reminder what you declared. Now, setting aside the cultural context here, I just want to say that Joshua clearly assumes that our commitments, that their commitments, are oftentimes originating from an inflated sense of human ability and human performance. You know, they're like, rah, rah, we're in. We can do this. And Joshua just assumes, eh, but can you, though? Can you? 
setting aside all of that, assuming all of that, assuming that what, what's happening here is he's assuming that given the right conditions, with the right education, and even wonderful inspiration, will that be enough to inoculate you from being inconsistent, hypocritical, and flawless in follow-through? The reality is it's immature, it's deeply immature to think that if you just have enough of the right information, you will be wonderfully consistent. That, friends, is a childish dream. It's wonderful to get you started, but it will not sustain you over the long haul. Emotional fervor and being confident in your declarations, that's a great way to get you going in something. Something even like in your faith. But eventually, you have to grow up and give up childish ways. That doesn't mean that we don't bother with commitments. So that's, don't hear me say that. I 100% believe in making commitments. I, I believe in declarations. We should make commitments. I've done a lot of marriages. I've officiated a lot of marriages. Let me say that. <laughs> and we say vows at marriage ceremonies. Now, I know when I'm reading off the vows and I'm looking at the bride-to-be, the husband-to-be, I know it's like, well, you're going to fail miserably at this. It doesn't mean that I don't offer them, and it doesn't mean that I don't encourage them to make them, right? So it, it's good for us to make these commitments. I, I'm not saying that it's not, but it does mean that while we, yes, we have agency, yes, we have the freedom to choose, we we also have to recognize that we each possess a glitch in our DNA, right? That just demoralizes us sometimes and, and it makes us realize, man, we just aren't, I'm not able to actually follow through like I said I was going to follow through. And the thing is, is that mature people know that really well, deep in their bones. But Paul said it like this, Romans 12, 3, for by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment. Or Proverbs 16, 18 says it this way, pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. It's a clear theme in the Bible that maturity requires community, which they have, witnesses, which they have, accountability, which they, they have. All of those are wonderful. That Truth has been affirmed in my own experience in the faith that, like, that, that maturity and growth and sticking to my commitments requires other people. Like, it just does. I, I need to be called out at times, lovingly and gently by other people. But the thing, but the thing is, um, not all communities are the same. Not all communities are safe. And not all communities encourage actual mature growth. A growing community, actually, a community that assumes we are desperately flawed and that underneath we all know it, that we all know that in some fashion we don't really know what we're doing, that is a powerful community. When the community collectively is holding that assumption that, hey, we are all hypocrites here. We are all really inconsistent here, right? Right? I mean, is that not the obvious truth about that. And a community that does that, I would say, 
is a really powerful one because while, <laughs> while you might think assuming inconsistency and assuming hypocrisy sounds terribly negative, which you might. You might be sitting there now thinking, man, this dude is on something today, right? And he is not making me feel good about myself. Well, hang on a second. While it sounds terribly negative, a community that does this with compassion might just be the community that also forges honest conversation, honest evaluation, and sober judgment of ourselves. When I'm with people that assume inconsistency and hypocrisy in me, then when I'm a hypocrite and I'm inconsistent, I'm quite comfortable bringing it to the table with them. Because when I bring it up, they're like, well, yeah, me too. This is who we are at times. What do you think happened? Where did you go wrong? Well, let's work on it. Let's talk about it. But the opposite, you see, is the case for another kind of community, what I would call a stuck community, a community that assumes Christian people are just automatically prone to honesty. Christian people are just prone to courage and prone to being humble over the long haul. They will be, those kinds of people within that community will be so turned off by their own lack of those things, they'll just deny it even to themselves when it surfaces. They'll split it off. And you know what else they'll do? They'll blame shift. They'll just keep creating more and more enemies out there to heap all of that anxiety on. You know what? It must be them. It's their fault. It's his fault. It's her, her fault. We do a really good job of that. Communities, including church communities, do a really good job of that. Or they'll just isolate and hide. None of which is really good and it doesn't get them anywhere. But if you're receptive to seeing and owning your own inconsistencies and hypocrisies, it's a wonderful sign that the gospel is taking root. That's what I want to encourage you. And if you're hearing this and you're not just thinking of it as negative, but also thinking, maybe there's a truth in this that I need to hear. I would say this. It means the gospel, the good news of Jesus is getting is inside of you and taking root in you. It means that you're probably beginning to see the pattern that's been laid out in, in your Bible all along. The pattern I'm talking about here is this, the Bible's no-nonsense way of not inflating my ego, but deflating it with the sole purpose of making me yearn and hunger for mercy and grace. That's the Bible's interest. The Bible's interest is not making you feel like a super-powered human that can do anything and everything if you just try harder. The Bible's purpose is writing a story that's saying, hey, I know you really want to be that way, but you can't. You can't. You need a heck of a lot of help. And then the people that read it that way and start to encounter it either shove it away because it's the words of death or it's the words of life for some. And they say, yeah, finally somebody that gets me and still wants me around. That's what the Bible's interested in doing. You know, Jesus, even before Jesus surfaces, you see Joshua deploying the pattern right here. I mean, you saw it. He essentially says, to these people, to this community, fear and serve God. Stop all this idolatry. It's killing you. And what do they say? They confidently say, they run to the altar, don't they? Okay, okay, we're in. We're in. 
We choose the Lord. And then Joshua, probably with tongue in cheek, says, you're not able. Imagine if I did that. Imagine if I said everybody that wants Jesus, everybody that wants to commit and mature in Jesus, come forward. I'll wait. And then as the people start to come forward, you know, one by one, little bit by little bit, everybody starts to come forward and say, hands in the air, I want Jesus, I want to mature in Jesus. And I say, go back to your seats, you can't do it. Right? The elders would fire me. What is he doing? Stop and ask yourself, what is he doing? And is it the repeated pattern in the Bible? And I would say it is the repeated pattern in the Bible. This is the repeated pattern. This is the, um, it's the way the Bible says, talks about it is like uh, count the cost, right? Do some accounting. This, this life of faith can be, bring horribly difficult struggles. Uh, you're working against a broken, sinful self. You're working against a broken, sinful world. Do you actually know um, what you're committing to? Do you know it? Do you know you're actually signing up to deny yourself and to be crucified? Do, do, you've, you've thought that one through, right? Do, you do know that this is about deflating your ego over and over and over and over and over again until you're just like, oh my gosh, why did I do this? And so the Bible's way of talking about it is saying, hey, count the cost. But if you see God's worth, if you see his love for you, if you see what he's willing to do for you, if you see how much God loves the world, some people will keep showing up. They'll, they'll keep listening, they'll keep learning, they'll keep confessing, they'll keep serving in spite of their setbacks and their fears. Nobody delivers this, this kind of, this pattern, this, this gut punch better than Jesus himself. See Luke 14. Jesus has a crowd of interested people. There are people that are probably on the brink of saying, yes, we can. And he turns to them and he makes real faith let alone mature faith, just seem impossible. It says this in verse 26, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes. And for those of you who are new to the Bible, you're like, wait, Jesus said this? Jesus said this. Even his own life, he can't be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. And then down in verse 33, he says this, So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Now, I don't know how much more disturbing you can be than that. Is Jesus playing with us? Is he? Why the scare tactics? This is a side of Jesus, if I'm honest, it disturbs me, and it causes a great deal of insecurity inside of me and whether or not I've got the amount of devotion that is needed. But I want to leave you with this. Maybe that's the point. Maybe this is the grace punch that this self-justifying ego maniac needs to hear. What if, what if wholehearted faith, the one that is talked about in Joshua 24, wholehearted faith 
sincere faith, loyal faith, is not so much a cry of declaration, but a cry of desperation. What if that's what it was all along and still is right now? And the Bible's job and interest and purpose is to get you to see that. In other words, if, I, if I'm understanding, and I'm trying to understand, but if I understand all of this accurately and what's being laid out here in this story, growing up in the faith is taking responsibility for my own life, assuming that I'm going to horribly struggle, and ultimately crying out for rescue, not recognition. Not like, Lord, look at the commitments I made. But instead, it's actually, Lord, please, if you don't rescue me, I'm done. Because I can't. Because while I can say that I'm going to renounce these things, and I'm going to try to renounce these things, I'm going to horribly struggle. And it's best that I just stop pretending. Maybe real faith, authentic, true, sincere faith, to use Ken Fusen's word, maybe real faith is a miracle. Or you actually never really understood it. Maybe it is a complete work of God by His grace that I can even voice, you know what, I'm sinful, I need desperate, desperate help. Please save me, please rescue me. And friends, I would just say that this is precisely how Jesus wants you to receive him, as a rescuer. A rescuer. If this is who Jesus is to you, he's becoming that to you, even if it's just a little bit, you're invited to come up to the table this morning. If that's not what Jesus is to you yet, friends, I, friend, I, I'll pray for you. I, I hope that at some point your eyes open and your ears are open to what's actually happening in your life, that the rest of us are willing to just say, hey, I, I, if this is up to me and my abilities and my performance, this is not going to go well. But thanks be to God, he sent his son to come in and remove the heart of stone and give me a heart of flesh to make me soft, to make me sensitive to the fact that I am struggling and I need help. This bread reminds us and represents Christ's body broken for us, for people like me that are inconsistent and hypocritical and that struggle at times. And this cup of wine represents Jesus' blood shed for the same kind of people. If that is your reality, you're invited to this station or this station. There's a gluten-free station up here if that's what you would like to do. Take a moment to examine yourself. That's what the scriptures say. Just be honest. Start having those conversations with yourself. If you need to have some conversation with someone here or a pastor, please seek us out at some point. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we ask that your spirit give us eyes to see and ears to hear. Give us a receptive heart. Open our hearts to the ways in which we know we're not measuring up. We know it, and maybe we're, we're denying it or we're
pushing it off or we're suppressing it. We just need to bring it to you. And I pray that as a, as a community of people that we little by little continue to grow in our ability to bring it to you. Please take what we do so poorly and give us your love, your forgiveness, your grace, and the courage to keep coming. You can make these things possible because this is who you are. This is the kind of God you are. And I need you to be that kind of God. Thank you for having such wonderful mercy upon us and our church, myself included. It is a great gift that I will not, and I do not want to take for granted. Thank you for this time. May we take part in the communion. May we take part in the table in gratitude this morning that we have a God like you. It's in Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening. Learn more about our church and support by giving to the Mission of the Oaks at www.theoakscommunitychurch.org.